Welcome to It's a Good Life, a podcast dedicated to helping you live your best one. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, top of the morning to you and welcome to It's a Good Life podcast. I'm your host, Brian Buffini, and this show is all about feeling, thinking, and doing better and getting to the good life requires having that right mindset. And to help us get us there today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Daniel Pink, author of five New York Times bestsellers. And they're all about how to better your life. And his latest book is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. I love this book, Daniel. I'm looking forward to getting into it today. Thanks for being on the show. I really enjoyed this read. Congrats. Brian, thanks for, thanks for reading the book and thanks for having me on the program. I'm, I'm really glad to be with you. Well, we have a very large book reading, book buying audience, and they are all into this. So this will be a great time. We'll probably do a couple episodes here today and then give people an opportunity to dig into the power of regret. I love the principles. I love what it's about. I've used some of these same principles, and they're just, of course, very well articulated by you in this. So for those who aren't familiar with your work, right, I'm always amazed at how many people is new every day to somebody. Give us a little background. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what started you down the path to becoming a writer. Well, I'm 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 never surprised that people haven't heard of me. So I'm I'm actually I have the opposite view that if anybody's actually read something I've written, I'm just I want to just send him a thank you note straight away. <laughs> so I was I grew up in the American Midwest. I grew up in Central Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. I uh, I went to college, uh, studied linguistics. Uh, went to law school because that's what I that's what you do. Right. I decided not to practice law. Instead, started working in politics in a very kind of unplanned, half-ass way. Became a political speechwriter. Decided after several years that I did not want to work the rest of my life in politics. Um, and um, along the way, I had always been writing. Uh, on the side, I decided that what I was doing on the side should be what I was doing in the center. And um, and about 25 years ago, uh, not quite, uh, 20 plus years ago, I decided to go out on my own as a, a writer. And, and I've been writing books ever since for the last 20 years. Uh, this is now book number seven. And as you said at the top, Brian, I'm trying to write books that, that help people see their world a little more clearly and live their lives a little more fully. Well, I'm a speaker who writes, okay? And so I've had a New York Times bestseller purely by sheer force of volume of the number of people I've seen. But when I read your books, I go... Force counts. Well... Force counts, man. It does. But I, I will say this. It's like the difference between a golfer and a golf pro. I can communicate and articulate. But I, when I, I read, you know, it's just such a... There's, there are a number of people, when I read their work, just the style of the writing is so engaging. And then if the content's good on top of it, and so you've got both things going. You're a wonderful writer. Oh, you're, you're kind. But you really write about wonderful stuff. And today's content is phenomenal. And I think, as you've done a few times in your career, your timing is good. Your timing is good. So you have written this book on the power of regret. You've reframed regret to be something that can actually be good. And we're about that with The Good Life. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. So tell us about how to reframe regret so it's actually something good because most people, when they think of, you know, it's regrets, I have a few, right? But most of us, it's those deep hurts. If I could live it over, if I could do it over, or it's something I try to ignore and you've done the opposite with it. Instead of ignore, you're reframing it to put it for good use. And I, I just think it's very rich content. So maybe you could talk about how we can make regret become something good. 
Well, you've laid it out at, at the broad levels very well. Um, here's the thing. When we, when we experience regret, um, we can, many of us choose to ignore it. And that's a very bad idea. Um, that's not a bad idea philosophically. It's a bad idea because, it tell, because there's a body of science that tells us that is not an effective blueprint for living. At the same time, though, as you say, we, another approach is to wallow in our regrets, to become captured by them, to ruminate on them. That's an even worse idea. Right. What we want to do is we want to think about our regrets. We want to use our regrets as signals, as information to do better in the future. And what this body of science tells us is this. And I think this is sort of at the top level, the most important, the most important things to understand, or at least to walk through the door of understanding. And it's this. Number one. Everybody has regrets, right? The, 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 the idea that you can go through life without regrets is nonsense. Everybody has regrets. The only people without regrets are five-year-olds because their brains haven't developed. <laughs> Truly, people with brain damage and sociopaths. The rest of us have regrets. <laughs> um, now, here's the thing. Regrets feel bad. Uh, and, and there's other research showing that regret is one of the most common emotions that we have. So you have to ask yourself, why is this thing... That's so unpleasant, so ubiquitous. And the answer is, because it's useful if we, deal, if we deal with it, right? And once again, there's a pile of evidence showing that if we treat our regrets properly, precisely as you laid out, not ignoring them, not ruminating on them, but confronting them, the benefits are huge. It can help us become better negotiators. It can help us become better problem solvers. It can help us become better strategists, better parents, find more meaning in our life. Um, the trouble is, is that nobody has really taught us how to effectively deal with our regrets. But once we learn that, they're powerful in finding a path to a good life. Well, you know, we look at this dynamic where we live in the regret and you talk about it, you know, and there's that vein of modern psychology, which is let's continue to relive and relearn and, you know, see you next week. And, and then it becomes the condition. Right. As opposed to it's something I did. It's how I thought. It's something I regret. You know, my old friend Zig Ziglar used to say failure is an event, not a person. And when we wallow in it, as you say, it becomes the person. It becomes who you are. It becomes your identity. And maybe you're a victim or you have a condition. The big part of it, I think, is avoidance. The thing about regrets is they never telegraph when they're going to come into your unconscious mind. Out here in California, we don't have that many earthquakes, to be honest with you. But it's great because it keeps the population a little lower than it needs to be. You know, so if it, because people are, oh, I could never live in California because the earthquakes. I go, that's right. Stay in Ohio. <laughs> so the thing about it is we get these sometimes these little rumbles. And they're the precursors to what's coming. If there's more coming, you can kind of prepare and do what you need to do. And they're the prequakes. Regrets, they seem to hit me at the oddest of times. Yeah. You know, they come into my mind. And uh, next thing you know, it's like, ooh, or ow. And it's something you don't want to deal with. And, you know, for an Irishman, it often leads to a glass of Guinness. Or mm. it leads to focusing on sports. Or for everybody, right? We end up going to all these other places. In the book, one of the things that really jumped out for me and get a little technical with it, is this whole dynamic of counterfactuals yeah. and how they can affect us. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that uh, for a moment. Sure, sure. It's, it's an important point because one of the things that regret teaches us, I mean, not only does it does the regret make us human and make us better, but we should be impressed with our ability to regret things. It takes a lot of cognitive dexterity. It's in, our minds and our brains are incredible. And one of the things that our minds and brains do are is, is exactly as you say, counterfactual thinking. That is, we can conjure events that run counter to the actual facts. And 
there are two broad categories of counterfactual thinking. One of them is is what what's known as downward counterfactuals, where you imagine how things could have been worse. I like to, downward counterfactual is too complicated. I like to call it an at least. Okay, so one kind of counterfactual thinking is at at least thinking, um, and and it's and it's this. Um, so this is it's fascinating. One of the things that you see is that if you look at the facial expressions of Olympic medalists, you'll find that gold medalists are the happiest, but bronze medalists are pretty psyched. Bronze medalists look really happy. Why? Because of the counterfactual. At, at least, least I got a medal. Finish, exactly. At least I didn't finish fourth like that schmo over there doesn't have any medal. So we think about how it could have been worse. And here's the thing about at least that kind of counterfactual thinking that makes us feel better and feeling better is cool. All right. Now, there's another kind of counterfactual thinking, which is an upward counterfactual where you think about how things could have turned out better. An upward counterfactual, I like to call that an if only, if only. And that's the silver medalist. The silver medalist is saying, if only I had kicked harder in those final 25 meters, I'd have touched the wall first. If onlys make us feel worse and regret is an if only. But here's the thing. If onlys make us feel worse, but done right, if onlys help us do better, at least don't help us do better. If onlys make us feel worse and help us do better, arguably, if onlys help us do better because they make us feel worse. And if we treat it right. What a great, a great so, example. Of but, but this ability to think this ability to think counterfactually is incredible. This is why, as I was saying before, um, that not being able to do that is a sign of a problem. It's a sign that you could have some kind of brain disease. Uh, you know, uh, it's people with hunting, certain kinds of Huntington disease, people with certain kinds of presentations of schizophrenia, um, certain other kinds of neurodegenerative disorders can't experience regret because the, the, the proper functioning of their brain has been disturbed. So it's actually a positive sign if you're feeling regret. It's like, hey, you're alive, you're working, good things are happening, and you can actually... Do something with you're this. human. Yeah. You're normal. No, that's great. But it, exactly as you say, you got to be. You got to learn how to do something with it. A great example of that is our primary business. Been business coaching for over 26 years, and you know this is kind of my little hobby deal I do over here. And we've had a client for 25 years. Her name is Kathy Martin, and Kathy Martin owns 40 world and U.S. records in masters running. So over 50, Kathy Martin. You know. Nike commercials, there's yeah. an ethnic commercial or Blue Cross Blue Shield now, whatever. So wow. she's this stud woman who's run all these different races and won all these different awards. And I was interviewing her one time because she's a realtor, which is our primary business. And so she's the running realtor. And so she missed the world record by like an eighth of a second. And her if only was, she goes, I had a couple of glasses of wine the week before this race. And she goes, if only I hadn't done that. Two months later, she broke that world record by so much oh. that I don't think it's ever going to be touched in human history. Right. I mean, it was like the Bob Beeman jumping out of the pit in the Olympics. But she used the if only. And so what she did for two months, ate the cleanest she'd ever eaten in her life, trained the best she'd ever trained in her life, missed it by one eighth of hundredth of a second and set a world record that I, it probably will never be touched in senior women's running. So as you said that, that jumped into my mind. I go, yeah. There is an example of an if only coming to bear. And using it and using it properly. No, it's brilliant stuff. And I had never thought about this, but the four core categories of regret. I just love the fact that you've structured this and systemized it for people to get their head around. And I'd love you to walk us through each one of these 
four categories, because I think this will help people kind of build a filing system of where the at least and if onlys belong. Oh, okay. I like that. I like that metaphor of a filing system. That's a really good way to think about it. Uh, I never thought about it that way before. So he, so let me, so, so what I did is I, um, not only did I look at some of the science on, or a lot of the science on regret um, from neuroscience and cognitive science and social psychology and developmental psychology, but I also did a couple of big research projects of my own, one of which was called the World Regret Survey, where I collected regrets from people all over the world. Uh, with just a couple of tweets and a newsletter mention, we ended up with 15,000 regrets from people in over 100 countries. We're now over 19,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. And what I found when I actually read through those regrets, at least the first 15,000 regrets, what I found when I actually read through those regrets was that, as you say, Brian, around the world, around the world, people have the same four core regrets. And here's what they are. Number one is what I call a foundation regret. A foundation regret is if only I'd done the work. These are people who make small decisions early in their life that are stupid, that aren't cataclysmic on their own, but that accumulate into, into bad outcomes. So these are people who, I mean, a, a classic one is, um, is people who spend too much and save too little. And so they're 45 years old and say, I don't have a cent. Uh, because I squandered it all. Uh, people who uh, make bad health choices, uh, people who don't work hard enough in school, et cetera, et cetera. Second category, very interesting one, is boldness regrets. Boldness regrets are if only I'd taken the chance. And these are people who, reg- and it's it, and it, it doesn't really matter like the domain of life, it's all over. These are people who regret not traveling, who regret not speaking up, who um, who regret not starting a business, who regret not asking somebody out on a date. They're at a juncture in their life. They can play it safe or they can take the chance. When they don't take the chance, not every time, but a lot of the time, like most of the time, people regret it. Third category, moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. Again, you're at a juncture. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. You do the wrong thing. Most of us, again, regret it. And so a lot of the things in this category are things like marital infidelity, um, bullying, that kind of stuff. Fourth category and final one, connection regrets. That's if only I'd reached out. These are about relationships that should have been intact or that were intact, that come apart, usually in slow, undramatic ways. People say, okay, I should really reach out, but it's going to be really awkward if I reach out and they're not going to care. So they don't reach out and it gets feels even more awkward. And then sometimes it's it's too late. And so, so... I want just to quickly summarize foundation regrets if only I'd done the work, boldness regrets if only I'd taken the chance, more regrets if only I'd done the right thing, and connection regrets if only I'd reached out over and over again around the world. These are the regrets that people express. So my background for many, many years was in the real estate business. And the number of times in my career where I'd meet some older person who'd go, you see that corner lot over there? I could have bought that for $28,000. And now it's worth 3.2 million. And I would always use those stories to motivate my first time buyers and go, here's an example from codger number one and codger number two. And it's always, but I didn't, right? It was always, but I didn't. And it was something else you said here that just jumped off for me with these connection regrets, which is you said it's slow and undramatic. Yeah. I think most people think their regrets come from fast and very dramatic especially with relationships. Yeah, that's not what I, it's a great point. That's not what I found with 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 these with these connection regrets. Like a lot of these so so like what we tend to think of the way that relationships come apart is through something um 
um, like like some kind of big falling out, some kind of big row. We're screaming at each other and swearing at each other and throwing plates at each other. And, and that's not the stories that these thousands of people told. What they told is much more of a drift, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, even even parents and children, um, children and parents, siblings, relatives, and especially friends. Uh, the way that these that a lot of now there are instances where there are rifts, but more of them are more of them are drifts. And what happens is is that and this is where we're wrong is that people say, as I said before, it's going to feel awkward to reach out, and the other side's not going to care, and they're wrong. The thing is is that when they do reach out, it's way less awkward than they think. And the other side almost always cares. So I, I really think that a lesson from this, again, as you pursue a life well lived, is that if you're at a juncture where you're choosing, should I reach out or should I not reach out? In my view, being at that juncture yeah. answers the question. Yeah, when in reach doubt, out. always reach out. When in doubt, do it. And look, I, you know, my best friend in high school, his name is Pat McCormick. Pat and I went through 12 grades together. In fact, I had a chance on more than one occasion to be promoted to a different class. And I stayed in the class I was in so I could sit next to Pat McCormick. I did his homework most of his career. We played sports on three different teams, thick as thieves. Oh, my God. During COVID, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And we just kind of stopped interacting. And this is a bit dramatic, but, I, you know, I was at a horse show here recently, and a guy walks up to me from Ireland and says, did you hear about Pat McCormick? And there was a tragedy. It was a car accident. And I'm standing there, awash in this feeling of regret, awash in sadness for him and his family and everything else. And so sometimes life is very abrupt like that. And so all I tried to do from that point, first of all, I reached out to his family and his extended family, and that's been very cathartic. But what I did do is I had a very long flight and I made a list. And I went through my phone, I went through my old day timer and started getting a list of people. And I have been systematically reaching out to people as a result, and it's that regret, it's a real regret for me, it's a painful thing, that drift is painful to me right now, but that pain I'm using to channel into energy to reach out to these other people that I've also drifted from in the busyness of life and the season of life and whatever else. So sometimes you don't get to mend that fence, sometimes you get to live in that regret, right, but it's what you do with it, and can you take action and you know, what I want to do is I don't want to have any more experiences like that. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. And the thing is, it's like some of our regrets are closed door regrets. That's a closed door regret. You can't do anything about Pat McCormick. But um, but you can accept, do exactly what you did, which is learn from it. And just think about what we were talking about closer to the top, Ryan. You could have said, ah, ignore it. I have no regrets, no regrets, no regrets. All right. That's a bad idea. You could also have wallet in it. You could have said, you could have said, um, oh, my God, I am the worst person in the world. I'm just a terrible friend. I'm a horrible human being and wallowing them. That's a bad idea, too. What you want to do is you're just like, it's a signal. I feel really bad right now. Here is a I got a negative emotion. Negative emotions are signals. What is this signal telling me? The signal is telling me that life is short, that there are people in my life who I care about, who I love, and that reaching out to them is is important to me. And this is the great thing about regret. Regret clarifies what we value, what this is doing for you. This regret is clarifying, I value friendship and companionate love, and is instructing you on what to do, which is get on that airplane, make that list, and start reaching out. Yeah, no, that's, that's incredible, right? And it makes sense that, you know, one of the things that's talked about in the book in detail, which I recommend people get a hand on, I think people would be pretty excited based on our conversation to get their hands on this book. 
but you talk about the value behind regret and what it actually means. You also talk about action and inaction regrets. You know, we've talked a little bit about that, but again, talk about how we can respond to these action regrets. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is that um, one of the there's a, there's a kind of a universality to a lot of their regret, at least as I found it, and not that many differences based on age or not that many differences based on gender or race or um, uh, education or so forth. But there is a difference based on age. And one of the things that it shows is that when we are younger, we tend to have roughly equal numbers of action regrets. I regret what I did and inaction regrets, what I didn't do. But as we get older, it's the inaction regrets that take over. Um, inaction regrets outnumber action regrets about two to one uh, by the time we hit about 40. And that itself, that itself tells us anything. Now, the thing is, the reason for that, and to get to your question specifically, is that with action regrets, we can sometimes do something. So let me give you an example. We can, uh, let's say, I mean, it's a terrible thing. Let's say we swindled a business partner or not swindled. We, you know, we, we treated, we, we, we cheated somebody. We can say, oh my God, I feel bad. I cheated you out of this. I'm going to make restitution and apologize. Or you hurt somebody. I'm going to, I'm going to apologize. Um, there's a guy in the book who he happens to live in Southern California. He, got a, when he entered the U.S. military, U.S. Army, he got a tattoo that said no regrets. And then he regretted it. <laughs> and he had his tattoo. And then he had his tattoo removed. All right? So you can undo certain kinds of regrets. You can also, as we were talking about before, you can at least them. So I have a lot of people in the database of these now 19,000 regrets. It's, it's mostly women who say, ah, oh, I regret marrying that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. So you can find a silver lining in it. So for certain kinds of action regrets, you can take steps. Inaction regrets, the very reason that they they nag at us, the very reason that, as the poet Ogden Nash said, they lay eggs under our skin, is that we can't do anything. You can't undo them. You know, you, like you can't undo an inaction. Um, and that's why they stick with us and nag at us and gnaw at us uh, as we get older and older. And isn't it normal? You get a little older, you get a little risk adverse, right? You, you've had a few scars. You tend not to be as aggressive. You tend to be more conservative in your approach to things, and and it naturally builds that way. And yet, and yet, you regret it, right? And, and yet, like that might not be the way to that might not be the way to operate. I mean, I think it's a really important point. I, I think that in general. If we look at this all overall category of regrets and recognize that most of us have more regrets of inaction rather than regrets of action, I think what it tells us in life in general is that we should have a slight, perhaps even more than slight, bias for action, that we should do stuff. Um, and, and I think a lot of times we are risk averse when we're making decisions about our careers or, 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 or trying to, we, we, we spent, at least this is my, my own view, that, that I think in some ways we overvalue planning and undervalue doing. Okay, I'm going to have to have you say that again because that is just liquid gold right there, my friend. That's why the best sellers, you're going to have to say that. That's just magic. Well, I mean, I think that we overvalue planning and undervalue doing. That is, we try to plan out everything. We try to, you know, Come up with a strategic plan and the outline. I'm going to go here, here, here. And in some ways, that's an excuse to not act. But it's also, to me, this is my own view, Brian. Like, acting is a form of knowing. That acting is a way to figure stuff out. And this is the whole reason why 
so you put these two things together and you begin to, I think in life we should have a slight, you know, at least a slight bias for action um, because that's a way to avoid some of these regrets in the future. But action is also how we, action is also how we learn. There's some interesting research from uh, Ermini Ibarra, who's a professor at London Business School. About 20 years ago, she wrote a book about how do people make career changes. And the way that we thought about career changes is completely wrong, she says. She says, like, we think, like, okay, what I do is, like, I'm going to make a list of my strengths and my weaknesses, and I'm going to map it out, and I'm going to, like, plan this out, and I'm going to switch careers in that way. And what she said is that that's not how it really happens. What happens is people try stuff. They experiment. And, but, they act, but, but by doing things, they learn. And by doing things, it actually enhances their, their planning. So anyway, bias for action. That's the shorthanded view. Process of elimination. When in doubt, do it. You know, I first saw this, you know, there was a book, you know, The Five Regrets of the Dying. I'm sure you've read that. And this is kind of like next level from that. But it usually it was, you know, I wish I'd risked more. Like I say, we become risk adverse. But that in itself is the big risk, right? Because that and the regret compounds itself over and over and over again. So better to have loved and lost than never loved at all. Bingo. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, but I think that that's psychologically, psychologically healthy when people, as we get older, the fact that we regret what we didn't do tells us something. Um, and the fact that we can actually make sense of things that we did do tells us that, that, that sometimes action, I'm sorry, inaction is a much greater risk than action. It was interesting for me in your book, uh, you reference Ethan Cross, who we've had not only had on our show, but we have as a guest at our events. And in your book, you mentioned a technique called self-distancing. Oh, yeah. And I think that's real valuable. Maybe you could talk about that for a second. Oh, yeah. I mean, Ethan is, Ethan is like basically one of the leading scholars of this whole idea. And, um, and so, the, so the idea is, is that so when we think about our regrets, what we have to do is we have to actually reframe the way we think about ourselves. We should disclose them to make Disclose our regrets to make sense of it, but as we we also have to extract a, a lesson from our regrets. And what Ethan's research and others have shown is that we're terrible at solving our own problems. We stink when we look at our own problems. We're too enmeshed in the details. We're like we're like scuba divers swimming around in the murky dark waters. What we want to do to solve our own problems is we want to do exactly what he's talking about, which is self distance, which is just zoom out which is to look at our problems like oceanographers rather than scuba divers. And there are all kinds of techniques for doing that. Ethan has written a lot about, or some about, talking to yourself in the third person. So for you, instead of saying, what should I do? You should say, what should Brian do? Um, uh, uh, Andy Grove, at the former CEO at Intel, famously said when he was trying to make decisions, he said, okay, what would my successor do? All right, zoom out and think about somebody else. Uh, I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of thinking about Making a, making a phone call to yourself to the you of 10 years from now and asking that person for advice because I think that person has your best interest in mind and that person actually, we, have a, we can make a pretty safe bet what that person is going to care about. And uh, my favorite decision-making tool of all, it works for almost anything. It, it works for buying a house. It works for choosing a business partner. It works for you know everything, which is essentially to say, if you're stuck on a decision, ask yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do? I've had so many instances where people come to me and they say, hey, Dan, I can't decide what to do. Oh, I'm thinking about this and that and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, all right, all right. What would you tell your best friend to do? And they say, oh, I'd tell her to do blah, 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 blah. Yes. And I'm like, mm, 
Yeah. No, that's great. I, you've touched on a nerve there for us. We have about 20,000 clients in our coaching program. And we have hundreds of these coaches that work here in Carlsbad that are, this is what we've been doing, business coaching for decades. And what we often find like, and that's why I love about the self-distancing, is our coaches will say, my client has all the answers inside them for themselves. They just can't find it. And when we do this, that's one of the things we'll ask. Okay, so let's say your best friend in the office is struggling with this. What would you tell them to do? And, you know, it's amazing when you pull it out of them. It's like clear as a bell, write it down. They feed it back to them. They go, that's brilliant. Well, it is brilliant. And it's also the answer you need the most. So yeah, you're right. And that's why we need each other. We need interaction. We need connection. We need all these things. And it's a powerful thing. One of the things I really was touched on about your book is regret. I've always viewed it as a, a retrospective emotion, and I've tried to learn from things. Mm. One of the things you talk about is why we anticipate regret. I think there's a big key there to this whole thing. Why is it we actually anticipate the regret before it happens? Well, it's, that, that can be a healthy approach to try to anticipate our regrets and avoid them in the future. That's actually can be very healthy. The problem is, is that we don't do it all that well. All right. So we need we do it. OK, we're not we need some help on doing it. And, and we make we make two key mistakes. I think one of them is that we sort of to what we were talking about before, we anticipate too much risk. We overstate how much risk we're actually facing. And so we end up exactly as you were talking about. Sometimes when we anticipate our regrets, we um, uh, over index on on our concerns about risk. Uh an interesting example of that, weird example of that is, is if you think about multiple choice tests, people switching their answers on multiple choice tests. So let's say you're going along, you got the number 14. It's like, okay, I think the answer is A. So you put an A and then you go further along in the test. You're like, wait a second. I think the answer to 14 is, is D. And so sh- should you switch your answer? And there's a lot of research on this. And what it says is, yes, you should switch your answer. People are much more likely to switch from a wrong answer to a right answer on these multiple really? tests. Yes. But this Wish is I'd the, have met you 20, 30, 40 years ago. This is the problem though. <laughs> this is the problem. When we but, but people don't do that. What they do instead is that they anticipate the, the, the so they think, okay, wait, how am I going to feel? If I stick with the status quo and don't do anything, I'll miss the question, right? But if I switch from the right answer to the wrong answer, I'm going to feel like the biggest idiot. So they make a risk averse choice that is actually a suboptimal choice. They're they're not trying to make the best decision. They're trying to make the decision that minimizes the regret the most, which isn't always the best decision. So anyway, um, there's another aspect of there's so basically always switch your answer. Seriously, when you're if you're taking a multiple choice test and you think you should switch the answer, always switch your answer. It won't be that won't be right in in every single case. But over time, you're going to be better off switching your answer than sticking with your answer. And it gets down to trust in your gut. So much of this stuff with regret, we're trying to like you're talking about over planning. We're trying to protect ourselves from hurt and making a mistake. Bingo. And I don't want to make a mistake. And it's like the opportunity of gain or benefit or making the right decision is almost less to us than the pain of making the mistake. Exactly. It's very similar to it's a it's in the it's a close cousin of loss aversion. That is that is we're more concerned. It's irrational. We're more concerned about feeling like an idiot if we end up switching from the right answer to the wrong answer than we are about simply making the right choice at that time. Another problem with anticipating regret is that we can't minimize every single regret that we have. We make all kinds of decisions in the course of a day. Where, like, so I can say, like, like tonight, you know, like, what should I have for dinner? What will I anticipate? You know, let me anticipate my regret. Am I going to regret having meatloaf or am I going to regret having pasta? Right? 
what shirt should I wear tomorrow morning? Well, will I regret wearing my green shirt or should I regret wearing my blue shirt? All right. And you can just drive yourself nuts on, on that. So what we need to do is we need to maximize on the things that matter most. And here is where the me, the you of, of 10 years from now um, uh, comes in. It's a pretty safe bet. I can make a pretty, pretty decent prediction what the me of 10 years from now is going to care about. And the me of 10 years from now is not going to care what I had for dinner tonight. The me of 10 years from now is not going to care whether I bought a blue car or a, or a, um, a green car. The me of 10 years from now is not going to care whether I had, whether I, um, um, you know, got the, 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 the very best deal on the carbon monoxide, um, uh, monitors that were just installed in my house this afternoon or the second best deal on the carbon. Okay. The me of 10 years from now is not going to care about that. All right. But I think we can make a prediction of what the me of 10 years from now will care about. The me of 10 years from now will care if I have a Pat McCormick in my life who I haven't reached out to. The me of 10 years from now is going to be pissed. If I, um, the me of 10 years from now is going to have a few words with me if the me of today uh, does something that's the wrong thing. Um, the me of 10 years from now is going to say, Dan, why didn't you, you had a chance in 2022 to step up and take up and be bold and do something big. Why didn't you do that? That's what the me of 10 years from now is going to care about. And so what we should be doing is maximizing on a certain set, maximizing to avoid certain kinds of regrets and just chilling out about almost everything else. Oh, that's just good stuff. That's just great stuff. And there's so much more to it. And that's why we recommend getting this book, getting your hands on it and read it over and over. I recommend listening to this episode over and over again. <laughs> it is because you know why? Because, you know, you're talking about the good life. Absolutely. And I just think one of the things about the good life is regrets. I had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Wouldn't that be a good life? You know, wouldn't that be a good place to be? But the thing is, Brent, I mean, regrets give us a picture of the good life. And this is a big surprise for me in doing this research, that when all these people told me what they regret the most, by doing that, they're telling me what they value the most. What do they value? And that's these yeah. four regrets. These four regrets are a reverse image. They're a, they're a photographic negative of the good life. That is, that what do we want out of life? We want some stability. That's foundation. We want a chance to learn and grow and lead a psychologically rich life. That's boldness. We want to do the right thing. That's, you know, morality. And we want connections. We want love. That's what a good life is. And so regret, again, if we're just grown-ups about regret, what it's doing, as I said earlier, it's clarifying what we value and it's instructing us on how to do better. And what it's doing, it's a, it's a compass of sorts that's pointing us directionally to a life well lived. Beautiful stuff. Daniel, I, I finish off each one of these shows with five questions I've asked everybody. We've had hundreds of people on. All right. Five questions. Here's number one. Okay. Thanks for being on, by the way. This has been fantastic. My pleasure. What's the single best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Um, as a, it, it, I got it as a writer, and, and I think it applies to other things. It's like, so, so when I'm struggling with a written piece of work, it's, it, it's what is the promise you're making to the reader? What is the promise that you're making to the reader? I think that's good advice. It's like, what is the promise that you're making to other people? Who gave you that advice? Uh, from an editor. Good man. Yeah. Well, there you go. And that's one of the, you know, you've made a lot of promises. By the way, five New York Times bestsellers, you've kept a lot of promises. So well done. Number two, what's the one talent or gift you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Well, you want it from the shoulder, right? So, yeah. you, you know, three-point shot in basketball. You're good with the layups? That's the first thing. <laughs> 
That's the first. Oh yeah, I can hit. I can hit the short range and the layups, but the three pointers, man. Like I like to. I like to just like these these guys. It's unbelievable. They're sort of effortlessly from like 35, 40 yep. feet, just yep. draining them. I wish I could do that. Yeah. Well, just so you know, they're all wishing they could write. Number three. Yeah. What book has been most instrumental in your life? Um, I think it's a book that I read. Um, it's a book that came out in 1974. It's a book called Working by Studs Turkle, where he's an American radio journalist. American radio journalist, oh, yeah. and he traveled around America yeah. and he interviewed people about their work, and he um, just, and, and published those interviews. And it's about a 700 page book. It came out in 1974, and believe it or not, um, I, I read it. I read the first parts of it when I was like a kid because uh, my mother had gotten it from the public library and found it. This listening to people talk about their work was endlessly fascinating to me brilliant probably led you down the road to becoming a writer i've heard the name studs turkles many times and now i've got to put a book to it if there's one movie you're scrolling through the channels and you it's on and whenever it's on you stop Hmm. what's the one movie you've watched over and over again you know what it might be it might be it's a pretty contemporary movie it's maybe like 15 years old now is um is jerry Maguire? ah what is it about Jerry Maguire that gets you? I think it's because Jerry Maguire is trying to buck convention and do something big and meaningful. And he's dealing with, he's swatting away a lot of gnats and flies and pedaling into the headwinds to do it. And um, But he's doing it for the right reasons. Sounds a lot like Daniel Pink leaving the political arena, becoming a writer. Last but not least, what's a good life mean to Daniel Pink? Oh, uh, having people that you love and who love you. Yep. Well, you can't go wrong with that. Well, let me say this, my friend. I've loved having you here today as our guest. I love your work. Thanks a lot. Congratulations. I think the timing is exceptional. I think the content is wonderful. I wish you nothing but success. I know this interview will be a blessing to a lot of people. And I wish you the very best of luck with this book, The Power of Regret. I recommend it to everybody. I think if they listen to the show today, they'll be running to their Amazon or local bookstore to pick one up. And they should too. Well, thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the, um, the conversation. You bet. Well, as we finish up here today, I'm going to have my mother, Therese Buffini, the 91-year-old little Irish firebrand who's lived a life with very little regrets. Leave us all with a blessing today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope you get the book. And I hope to see you next on our next episode of It's a Good Life. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.